Hello all, I'm Laura Lee Siemens and this week we're going to be talking about the lies that everyone believes. Those who don't learn history are doomed to fall for the lies. You thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? lie and tell it frequently enough it will be believed who says that adolf hitler we're going to talk about hitler a little bit later in the podcast this whole podcast is going to be about the lies people believe some of the ones that bug me the worst we're going to talk about polar bears we're going to talk about straws we're going to talk about racist politicians and everyone i hate is literally hitler we're going to look at the history behind these lies and what we do with them as christians but before we do all that, let me remind you to check out my website, lauraleesiemens.com, for all my videos and my past podcasts and my blogs. My latest video in the Euthanasia series is up now. You can also check out my series on abortion, and I've started a new series for kidsmen people, all kinds of stuff about teaching kids ministry. So we're going to be talking about lies everyone seems to be believing. So normally I talk about the news that has happened over the week, but today I just need to talk about this. So why am I talking about this today? Well, over the last year, I've been shocked, like absolutely shocked at how many people I know who believe these lies. In fact, people email me because they're concerned for me. People who have known me for years suddenly think I've embraced racism and I'm pro-destroying the environment. People who know me would believe these lies. Lies that are made up about large groups of people, and since I'm part of that group, they believe the lies about me. Not just that, people I know who are smart, kind, compassionate people are suddenly totally willing to give the government extra control. Why? Because they believe these lies. Well, this summer, all of these lies crossed a line. I mean, it was the last straw. Here's what happened. I was with my children and their friends at Canada's Wonderland. One of my daughter's friends bought a slice of pizza and a drink. Her drink came with no lid and no straw. First of all, you need a lid to keep the bugs out. Also, the cups are not very strong. The lid kind of keeps the cup together. And how do you walk around a park with a drink if you don't have a straw or a lid? So I ended up carrying the cup for the girl as we walked, but eventually the drink just got thrown out. When I asked for a straw, I mean the look that I got, it was like I wanted to give the child a live grenade. That was the beginning of me being annoyed. But what I learned is that it wasn't just Canada's wonderland. Straws are being banned all over. In one part of California, you can get six months in prison for each straw that you give to someone. In an unrelated case, California changed its laws and it's now no longer illegal to knowingly give someone AIDS. So give someone a straw, jail. Give someone AIDS, totally fine. 
So what's the lie and what's the history behind this war on straws? First of all, the lie. Americans use 500 million straws every day and those straws are ending up in the ocean. Not just in the ocean, they're inside the nose of turtles. Basically, if you use a straw, you hate the ocean and turtles. And you're probably not a Christian because a Christian would care about God's creation. So, there's the lie. What's the history behind this? Let's go back to 2011. A nine-year-old boy named Milo Kress has a project for school, and he needs to choose a topic. Little Milo, he goes out with his family, and they're eating at a restaurant. He notices that people were taking the straws out of their drink, putting the straws on the table, and never using it. He thought, wow, those people are totally being wasteful. So he picked his topic, stop wasting your straws. His project was to find a way to convince restaurants to ask people if they wanted a straw. That way, the people who didn't want one didn't waste it. This is actually brilliant. What this boy saw was a great way for restaurants to save money. Straws, napkins, condiments, these add up to a huge expense in the food industry. And this is an industry that does not have large profits. But little Milo, he needed to know how many straws people use in the United States. So little Milo gets on his family phone and calls a couple of straw manufacturers. He asks them how many straws they sold that year. He then multiplies it by how many straw manufacturers are in the United States and then divides that number by 365. He comes up with 500 million a day. Americans are using 500 million straws a day. Okay, for a nine-year-old, that's actually genius. What isn't genius? Everyone in North America believing this report is an accurate scientific study. Two years after this report was written by a nine-year-old, it was being used for political decisions. In 2013, the governor of Colorado declared July 11th straw-free day. Little Milo is now 16. So what happened since his report was written when he was nine? Well, in California, Malibu, Davis, all of those places, Santa Barbara, they've all banned straws. Seattle has banned straws. Miami Beach and Fort Myers in Florida have banned straws. San Antonio, they actually went so far, they're the ones that said you can go to prison for six months for giving out straws. That's six months per straw. What about this idea that our straws are all ending up in the oceans and in the nose of turtles? Okay, I've seen the same pictures and videos you have, and I saw them before people sent them to me. And boy, once I complained about not getting a straw at Canada's Wonderland, did people ever send me pictures and videos of plastic in the ocean? All right, I agree. Plastic in the ocean, that's a real problem. It's horrible. Our oceans are beautiful. And really, they're the only part of our planet the whole world shares. Everything about the oceans fascinates me. I've swam in the Pacific Ocean, at beautiful beaches. I've watched the Atlantic Ocean waves crash into the cliffs of Newfoundland. I've spent time on cruise ships, and the beauty of the oceans are unbelievable. So yes, let's find a way to clean up our oceans, and let's find a way to stop the dumping of garbage in our oceans. So where do we start? Well, let's start by finding out who is putting the plastic in the oceans. So here's a few facts. By the way, Canada is responsible for almost none of the plastic in the ocean. 60% of 
comes from just these few countries, China, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam. So just those five countries are 60% of all the plastics in the ocean. But if you take two continents, Asia and Africa, combine them, they have 95% of the plastic in the oceans come from just those two continents, Asia and Africa. So in case you haven't figured out the math, that leaves 5% split between every Western country, North America, South America, Europe, Antarctica, Australia, all of those combined are responsible for 5% of the plastics in the ocean. That's all the plastics. So what percentage would be straws? I mean, we are looking at a very small percentage of 5% of the problem, which is shared by most of the countries in the world. Maybe you're thinking, well, wouldn't zero be better? Yes, it would. Zero would be better. But if you take Canada's percentage of that 5%, that's basically what we are, zero. Your straw is not a problem, and it's not ending up in the nose of a turtle. So why do I care? Am I just annoyed that Canada's Wonderland won't give my kid a lid in a straw? Well, yeah, I am annoyed by that. But am I just annoyed that Starbucks is not giving out straws anymore, and now they're giving up sippy cups? which has more plastic in it than the straw? Oh yeah, that annoys me too. But let me give you two reasons I'm actually mad about this. One, government control. So thankfully the government control hasn't spread to Canada yet, but people are calling on the government to pass laws that would take our straws away. And if the government does pass that law, most of the people I know will be totally fine with that. I am not one of those people. I don't want the government having that kind of control. Two, and this is the bigger problem, people actually need straws to live. I spent the last two years helping a friend as she battled Huntington's disease. She could no longer eat food. Her only substance she got was through drinks, and the only way she could drink was through a straw. This is not only true of Huntington's patients. This is true of people battling Parkinson's, MS, Alzheimer's, really any disease that limits your muscles these people depend on straws. When I posted about this on social media, people were quick to say those people could just use reusable straws. Okay, let's think that through. I have reusable straws in my house. We use them for water and juice. We do not use them for milk-based products because you cannot get them clean. When they are accidentally used for milk-based products, they go in the garbage. Most of the drinks people with these diseases need are milk-based products. We're talking smoothies and protein drinks. They cannot be cleaned properly. Are you asking these people who are already struggling to now add one more thing to worry about? Now they can't forget to bring their straw along? Why would we do that when our straws here in Canada have zero chance of ending up in the ocean? This war on straws is ridiculous and based on a lie. But that seems to be the trend with these hyper-environmentalists. That became crystal clear with a recent story of Paul and Christina, who were photographers for National Geographic. In 2017, Paul and Christina were on a mission. Paul and Christina are biologists who now work as photographers for National Geographic. The mission they were on? To find proof of the effects of climate change and share it with the world. So, they headed to Canada, to Baffin Island, Now, an interesting side note, according to Al Gore's videos, The Inconvenient Truth, 
Baffin Island was supposed to be covered in water by 2015. And also, according to the same video, all the ice should have been gone from the Atlantic Ocean by April of 2012. So if the fear mongers were, were right, there would have been no island to go to, and with no ice at all, the polar bears should all be dead or on the brink of death. This, of course, is not what Paul and Christina found. What they found was a beautiful island, and everything was completely fine. According to their own words, finding any signs of damage due to climate change was really hard. I'll point out, they went to Baffin Island in August, the one time of a year when these animals are actually hungry and looking for food. Still, they couldn't find any starving animals. Then they saw him, a bear. He was starving, could hardly stand. He was all bones, a walking skeleton. They took out their cameras and began to film. It was just the footage they needed. Paul uploaded one of the pictures to his Instagram, and the response told him they had found the footage they needed. Immediately, people were in tears. Look at what our environmental irresponsibility has done. The picture became the cover of the magazine, and a video with sad music and print about polar bears dying because of climate change went viral. The video has been seen by 2.5 billion people. That's with a B. 2.5 billion people. I have to wonder how many of those views took place in our school classrooms as teachers used it to brainwash our children into accepting their narrative. What happened to the bear? Well, no one knows. And all the excitement that Paul and Christina had about finding the footage, they forgot to call the Canadian authorities to have the bear examined. As the video went viral, the hunters from the First Nations on Baffin Island had some concerns with the reality behind the footage. They had seen no change in the bear population. The bear was clearly sick, not starving. And the print on the video seemed to imply there was no more ice or snow on Baffin Island. The First Nations were very quick to point out there was still four seasons on Baffin Island, and the winter was pretty long, and there was definitely snow. The footage they had showed was a sick bear in August. The hunters were not the only ones to state some concerns they had with the reality of the narrative shown. After a year, National Geographic had to make a statement. Here it is. I'm reading from their statement. Photographer Paul and I were on a mission to capture images that communicate the urgency of climate change. Documenting its effects on wildlife hasn't been easy. With this image, we thought we had found a way to help people imagine what the future of climate change might look like. We were perhaps naive. The picture went viral and people took it literally. National Geographic went too far in drawing a definite connection between climate change and a particular starving polar bear in the opening caption of the video about the animal. We said, this is what climate change looks like. While science has established there's a strong connection between melting sea ice and polar bears dying off, there's no way to know for certain why this bear was on the verge of death. So, how do you take back the 2.5 billion views? What do we do as Christians? Besides buying up mass amounts of straws and storing them in your basement to sell on the black market in a few years, okay, that's what you do as a capitalist. As a Christian, we have to look at the story in a few ways. First, 
God did tell Adam that he was to take care of the earth. And I do believe that command belongs not only to Adam, but to all of us. We should be responsible with the beautiful earth God created. I love nature. I love mountains and rivers and lakes. I grew up in Newfoundland. I love the ocean, the power of the waves hitting the rocks. I love animals. My kids ride horses and my trips to the barn are my favorite parts of the week. I love my dogs. There was a time when I also believed this propaganda about climate change. Back then we called it global warming. They had to stop calling it that when it turned out the globe wasn't warming. I started getting skeptical about the whole thing and then I just started ignoring it. It wasn't until my children started getting taught it in school that I started to research it more. The more I learned, the more I realized the whole agenda is a lie and it's being used to allow the government to make laws that are unnecessary and will control us. When I stopped believing the lie, that didn't mean that I stopped loving God's creation. I love God's creation because it points me to God. Creation shows the power and the majesty of God. As David said in the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God. While we are called to take care of the earth and see the glory of God in creation, we are also warned against worshiping the earth. Romans chapter 1 verse 25 says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So here's what I do as a Christian. One, don't exchange the truth for a lie. Make sure you know the truth. Take some time to read both sides of the argument. Remember, if what they are selling is a true, they don't have to lie about it. If it's real, they don't have to make it up. Number two, make sure it is guide your worshiping and not the creation. Allow creation to do what it was created to do. All of creation it was created to worship God and to point to God. To see creation and the beauty of it, then remember who made it and then worship him, the creator. All right, that's the first huge lie people are believing. Here's the second one. Conservatives are racist. This was really started in the States by saying the Republicans are racist. But yay, it made it here to Canada. And the left seems to have realized that it's actually a lie that works. So they're jumping on the bandwagon. They don't just say conservatives are racist. What they'll do is they'll say alt-right is racist and then label everyone right of Bernie Sanders as alt-right. As with all good lies, there's a hint of truth. The alt-right, and I mean the actually alt-right, are racist and not conservative at all. But let's look at the history of racism and see who the real racists are. So I'm going to be talking mostly American politics here because let's face it, when it comes to racist history in North America, that's kind of where a lot of it can be found. I'm not saying we don't have our problems here in Canada, but you know, we didn't have a civil war over it. So let's actually start with a civil war. We look now at Abraham Lincoln. We see Abraham Lincoln now as a hero. We all think of him as a hero, but at the time, he was the most hated man in America. He was even more hated than Donald Trump. The Democrats at the time couldn't decide on who to have run. So the Democrats actually ran two candidates. The Whig Party, that was the other main party of the time, they ran a candidate, and the Republican, which was the new party on the block, they ran Abraham Lincoln. Abe was a joke, a no-chance candidate. And he won with the lowest percentage of votes in the history of the United States. He only won because there were so many candidates. 
Immediately after winning, the Democrats were adamant that he was not their president. The Democrats were so afraid of losing their slaves, they were willing to have a civil war. 750,000 people died. 750,000 people. Also, the Democrats could keep their slaves. In 1860, one year before the Civil War started, there were 4 million slaves in the United States. Republicans owned zero of those slaves. Not one single registered Republican owned a slave. The Democrat Party was the party of slavery. During the war, the blacks fought alongside the Republicans. When armies were captured, the Democrats would imprison the white soldiers, but immediately kill the black soldiers. When Abraham Lincoln found out about this, he began to execute his prisoners. For every black prisoner that the Democrats killed, Abraham Lincoln had one of his prisoners shot. This actually stopped the practice of killing the black prisoners. The Civil War had two debates. The state's right debate, and that was really a war between the South and the North and the slavery debate, and that was the Republicans versus the Democrats. And the Democrats in the North were against the war because they didn't want their sons and husbands dying for the black men. At the same time, the Republicans in the South were against the war because they didn't want their husbands and sons dying for slavery. After the Civil War ended and the slaves were free, the Democrats set up the KKK. They wore pillowcases over their faces and long sheets so that they could hide their identity. They had secret codes. For example, if you were new to town, you'd introduce yourself as Mr. Akaya. That stood for a Klansman am I. Then if the other person was a Klansman, they would hook you up with a local chapter of Democrat thugs known as the KKK. The KKK seemed undefeatable, mostly because it was made up of every kind of person, politician, police, heads of newspapers, school superintendents. But the KKK was brought down by one man, a Republican, who wanted to make a difference. His name was Stutson Kennedy. Stutson joined the KKK. He learned all the secret codes. He got names of high-ranking people in the KKK. He learned everything that would end the KKK. The problem was the KKK ruled the media. Just like the Democrats of today, the media was the mouthpiece of the Democratic Party. There was no Fox News at the time, no podcasts or YouTube channels to go to. And then Stutson tried to sell a story to the media, and he was shut down. So Stutson had to come up with another idea. He would get help from a fake journalist, one with superpowers, one who was a journalist by day, but a real superman. He wrote a story for the most popular kids show on the radio, The Adventures of Superman. He wrote it into a story. Every secret code word, every handshake, every alias, it was all exposed. It was the beginning of the end of the KKK. This episode of The Adventures of Superman was aired, and children all across the United States suddenly knew everything about the Klan. And it, the Klan became a complete joke and mockery. It was the beginning of the end of the Ku Klux Klan. But this wasn't the end of the Democrat hate. It was the Democrats that came up with what was called the Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow is a black character in a series of stories. The laws were insane. They were meant to make sure the black population and the white population could never mix. These included laws about biracial marriage, where people could be buried, whites-only washrooms and water fountains, even baseball fields had rules. Black children and white children could not play in the same fields, and their fields had to be built miles away from the communities of the opposite race. 
Schools were, were separate. Hospitals had black entrances and white entrances. Every single one of these Jim Crow laws was passed by a Democrat legislature, signed by a Democrat governor, and enforced by Democrats. We're going to go come back to these Jim Crow laws a little bit later and tell you something really interesting about them. Here are some other things that happened in history. The U.S. passed amendments to the Constitution. They passed the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery. Republicans voted 100% for the 13th Amendment. Democrats voted 23%. There's the 15th Amendment, saying that everybody could vote. Republicans voted 100%. Democrats, zero. 14th Amendment, giving citizenship for all the people who were once slaves. Republicans voted 100%. Democrats, zero. Now, how in the world, with all these historical facts, was the lie even created that Republicans are the racist party and not the Democrats? Well, professors came up with this idea that the parties just switched in the 70s. All the Democrats became Republicans and all the Republicans became Democrats. So now the Republicans are to blame for all the racist history, not the Democrats. If you think that sounds kind of crazy, you're not alone. But here's how they came up with this. Whites in the South used to be mostly Democrats. Now whites in the South are mostly Republicans. Blacks used to be Republicans, and now they're mostly Democrats. So therefore, they switched. Dinesh D'Souza does a great job of explaining this. And if you want to get more information about this, check out his YouTube videos. But let's look a little bit into the history. The blacks turned to the Democrat Party in the 30s. The Jim Crow laws were enforced all the way into the 50s and 60s. So clearly the black population didn't turn to the Democrat Party because all the racists had left the party. So why did they? Well, what history shows us is that people will vote for socialism even if it means being enslaved. The socialist programs offered by the Democrat Party seem like a good idea and a great deal for the black community. What the deal did, though, is it put most of the black population into ghettos and it incentivized a fatherless household. Those are the two biggest problems that black communities have today. And that's caused by socialism. Still, 90% of those living in those communities being destroyed by Democrats and socialism continue to vote for the Democrats. I don't understand that. But it is changing. People like Candace Owens are helping with that. The black community is now 30% in favor of Donald Trump, and that number is rising every day. So what about the whites in the South? The whites in the South became Republican during the presidency of Ronald Reagan. And as Dinesh D'Souza points out, you can see in the stats that as racism goes down in the South, the number of Republicans goes up. They left the Democrats and joined the Republicans, not because they were racist, but because of the Republican stance on the pro-life, prayer in schools, and limited government. The lie that is taught in schools, the few schools that still teach any history, is that the switch happened under Nixon, and he had this strategy to get the white voter in the South. Well, if he did have that strategy, he didn't do a very good job of it, because he said nothing about race in his campaigns, and he lost the southern states in his election. He also had Jackie Robinson campaigning for him. Jackie Robinson is the hero of the civil rights movement, and a Republican. And as a Republican, he campaigned for Nixon. So that's all the history. But what about today? Who's the racist today? Well, imagine with me. You're sitting in a restaurant. You're a white male. You're sitting with a black female. Suddenly, a person runs into the restaurant yelling at you. Others in the restaurant are looking at you in disgust. They're whispering to each other. Some are even shouting at you to leave. 
The manager finally tells you you have to leave. A crowd has gathered outside the restaurant. You realize the crowd could get violent, and you can't leave. Police have been called. The police officers are black and Hispanic. They agree to help you make your way through the crowd. The crowd turns its hate on the police, yelling at you. Suddenly, you feel something pour all over you. Someone has thrown their drink over your head. You turn to see the black woman who is dining with you. She's walking tall, head straight ahead, chin held high, jaw clenched. She's bravely walking at a steady pace through the crowd. A white woman is following her, blowing a whistle in her ear. A white male is screaming curse words at her. Another white woman has a megaphone and is chanting loudly into your friend's ears. Does this sound like the racist history of the 1950s? Well, this happened this week. Charlie Kirk was a young white man. Candace Owens was a young black woman. The Democrats were the ones yelling. The Republicans were the ones simply wanting to eat at a restaurant. Has anything changed? The Democrats say they're against racism, but are they? Well, in order to be against racism, they had to change the definition of racism. Let's look at what the definition of racism is. Racism is a belief that race is the primary determination of human traits and capacity, and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority or inferiority of a particular race. The left is not against racism when that's the definition, but in 1970 they changed the definition. Everything changed when a woman named Patricia Debuel wrote a book called "Developing New Perspective on Race." An innovative multimedia social studies curriculum in race relations for the secondary school. In this book, Patricia just made up a definition of racism. Racism was prejudice plus power. In order to be racist, you had to have both prejudice and power. And white people, according to this book, are the only powerful race, so only white people can be racist. This definition is in itself racist, since it's saying that if you happen to be white, you're powerful. If you're not white, you're not powerful. So it is literally making race the primary determinant of human traits. This definition says that racial differences, like being white, produce superiority. The only way Patricia defined racism is that her definition of racism is literally an example of racism. So this is the new definition. This is the definition the left has picked up on, and now they now say they're against racism because they changed the definition. The left cannot say they're against the belief that race is the primary definition of human traits and capacity. They can't say that they're against the belief that racial differences produce an inherent superiority or inferiority of a particular race, because that's something they practice all the time. They call it white privilege. So the narrative that the right is racist—that's just false. But hey, isn't Trump Hitler? Okay, I can't believe how many people believe this. But to be fair, we were taught lies about Hitler and Nazism in school, so it's hard to compare Hitler and Nazism if you don't even know who they were. I was taught in school that communism is far left and fascism is the far right. Hitler was a fascist, so he belongs to the right. Turns out that whole thing is a lie. Here's the story of Adolf Hitler. As you listen, tell me what party you think he would belong to if he was alive today in Canada or the United States. In 1918, World War One ended. Fascism was born out of the depression that surrounded Europe after the war. A year after the war ended, a young Adolf Hitler joined the Workers' Party of Germany. 
It was Adolf Hitler that convinced the party to change its name. They would no longer be the Workers' Party of Germany. They would be the National Socialist Party of Germany. A year later, the party realized it needed a symbol, and we all know what symbol it took. The National Socialist Party of Germany tried to overthrow the government with force, and that landed Hitler in prison in 1924. That's where he wrote the book My Struggle. When Hitler comes out of prison, he's come up with a new plan to get the National Socialist Party into power. He gets movies made that preach his socialist message, and he takes on an abbreviation for his party. It's much easier for people to say Nazi than National Socialist Party of Germany, kind of like NDP. It's easier than saying the New Democrat Party. In 1928, the Nazis win 12 seats in the government. The president can see that the Nazi movement is growing in popularity, so he makes Hitler the chancellor. Then a few years later, the president dies. This makes Hitler in charge of Germany. When Hitler and the Nazis start working on the Nuremberg Laws, these are the laws that make Jews the second-class citizen. Something crazy happens. Imagine with me: a group of these men are sitting at a table working on these laws. One of these men begins to hand out sheets of paper. On this paper is a guide, a how-to for writing laws that will make one race second-class citizens. What is this handout? It's the Jim Crow laws of the Democrats. These laws were literally the blueprint of the Nuremberg laws. You can read about this in the book *Death of a Nation*, where Dinesh D'Souza has in his possession the actual transcripts of this meeting. If you think things can't get more shocking than this, just wait. They can. The Nazis begin discussing how will we decide who's a Jew? Will it be based on religion or the race? So they look at the Jim Crow laws. According to the Jim Crow laws, if you have even one drop of black blood, you are a black person. The Nazis decide that is too harsh. The Nazis think the Jim Crow laws are actually too racist, even for a Nazi. So the Nazis decide to be a Jew. You must have three grandparents that are Jews. You need to be at least seventy-five percent Jew in order to be a Jewish person. Under Hitler, the National Socialist agenda is put in place. Government runs the schools, the banks, the insurance, the media, the churches. Basically, the government runs everything. Meanwhile, in Austria in 1938, a Great Depression swept over the country. People were starving. They were going door to door begging for food. There was a thirty percent unemployment problem. Farmers and businesses were going broke. Meanwhile, the media kept showing pictures of their neighbors, the Germans living amazing, happy lives under the rules of the Nazis. The media showed nothing of the racist laws against the Jews. The Austrians began to think about joining Germany. The Nazis promised they would take care of everything. They would say things like, "You have the right to be equal. We will have guaranteed income equality for everyone. We'll give free housing to you, free healthcare. We'll pay for your heating. We'll give you food stamps. We'll give you money for each child you have. We'll make sure there's jobs for everyone. We'll have free childcare, free sports programs for your children." So the Austria Party voted 98 percent to join Germany and the Nazi program. It was not until 1943, when the Nazis became full dictatorship, that the people realized what happens when you give away your rights for socialism. Am I saying the NDP is Hitler? No. Am I saying the Democrats are Hitler? No, neither. 
there was only one Hitler. What I'm saying is the idea that Nazis were on the right is a lie. Nothing the right stands for has any part in the belief system that is Hitler. But he did share some things with the left. Look, Hitler was his own demon. The only person in history who was Hitler was Hitler. So I'm not comparing anyone to Hitler. But it is important to know what he actually believed. And he was a national socialist. So what do we do as Christians? Well, to start, racism and Christianity cannot coexist. We are created by God and every man Woman and child is created in the image of God. Judging someone by the color of their skin is not just stupid, it's immoral. You are judging someone based on the way God created that person. If you believe you're a better person than the person next to you because you have a different skin color than them, you need to get your heart right with God. Let me be crystal clear here. If you're a white person and you think you're better than a black person because you're white, you are immoral and you need to get things right with God. If you're a black person who thinks you're better than the white person sitting next to you, you are immoral and you need to get things right with God. If you're a white person and you think you're better than the native Indian sitting next to you, you are immoral and need to get your heart right with God. And if you're a native Indian and you think you're better than the white person sitting next to you, you are immoral and you need to get your heart right with God. I do not care what color of skin you have. If you believe that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacity, and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority or inferiority of a particular race, you're a racist. And racism and Christianity cannot coexist. So you have to choose Jesus Christ or your racist hate because you cannot have both. Okay, so I went kind of crazy today. Did I throw too much at you? I mean, it turns out you can drink from straws. Polar bears are not starving to death. The Democrats are the ones that are racist. And Hitler was a socialist. All right, was that too much for you? Let me tell you where to start. Start with truth. Find out what is truth. Does truth even matter? Is truth even real? There's only one place to find that, and that is the Bible. Jesus said, I am the truth. The truth will set you free. So forget everything. Forget the straws. Forget the polar bears. Forget the politics. Just put all that aside for a minute. Truth is going to set you free. What does that even mean? Okay, start with truth. Start with the truth about yourself. You were made in God's image. He created you in love. The Bible says he knit you together in your mother's womb. You are beautiful and wonderfully made. He created you for a purpose, and that purpose is to be in fellowship with him. Everything else comes second. Everything else falls into place when you begin to fulfill your purpose, and your purpose is to be in fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. How does that happen? It starts by Bending your knee to God, turning your life over to him. It starts by saying you are a sinner and you deserve only hell. But God in his goodness and mercy loves you. He came to earth, Jesus Christ, to rescue you. He paid your debt on the cross and he rose again. So bow before him in humility and ask for forgiveness. This is the beginning. This is the start. This will place you forever in the family of God. But it's not the end of finding your purpose. Of being in fellowship with God. Every day open the Bible. Study it. That is where you're going to find truth. That is where you're going to find purpose. And that is where you're going to find fellowship with God. It's the start of the journey. Does truth matter? Truth is the foundation of everything. And Jesus is the truth. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. Don't forget to check out my website for more videos and podcasts. I've been airing some bonus episode missionary stories. So far, I've done Corey Ten Boom and Hudson Taylor. 
This week, we're going to have John and Betty Stan. Can you do me a favor? Subscribe and leave a five-star review and maybe share with your friends. Music for this podcast is by Robert Matthews. Check out his SoundCloud in the link below.